Take your Bibles again, please, the book of Mark and chapter 6. There is a little note sheet on your, uh, somewhere near your seat or nearby. Uh, if you note, some of them will have a title on top and some of them will not have a title on top. I was going to play a game and see who could guess the title by the end of the sermon. I thought that would be just plain mean. So uh, the title is Disciples and Their Lord. A uh, little glitch with my printer and my computer this morning. That's what went wrong there. What I want to do this morning is I want to begin sort of like a little mini-series in the book of Mark about discipleship. It's just two messages, the one this week and not next week, but the one the week after. I want to look at this passage and see there how discipleship is explained. And then we're going to look at other passages in Mark and kind of tie them all together. And I want to look at two basic things. Uh, first of all, the disciple and his Lord today, and then the disciple's life and ministry in two weeks' time. And we're going to see them both in this passage here. The call to follow Christ is far more than a convenient get-out-of-hell card. Although in many ways, in many Many of the ways we behave and think, I think we think that somehow deep in the back of our minds that I can just trust in Christ, I can make a proclamation of faith, I can be baptized, I can go to church, do all those things, and know for sure I don't have to go to hell, and that's where my discipleship will end. I'll leave it to the, the Spurgeons of the world to do the great preaching, or the, the Livingstons to go over to Africa, or the Pyatts to go to... Indonesia, and things like that. I won't worry about all those deeper callings and commitments that being a disciple of Christ is all about. What Jesus is going to show the disciples from pretty much from now until the end of the book in increasing intensity and increasing uh, overshadowing that the life of a disciple is a calling to come and to die. To come and die the death, death to sin, death to self, death to the world. And in some cases, in the case of all but one of them, literally physical death as a part of discipleship and following Jesus Christ. Up until now, you can imagine their joy, their kind of thrill as they've walked with him all the time from when he called them back on the shores of Galilee and other places, and they've watched him do miracles. They've listened to him preach. They've watched him cast out demons and cleanse lepers out of people. They've watched all these things going on. They've been on the boat They've seen the storm stopped by a single or two words. They've watched some of them how Jairus' daughter goes from the still, cold, pale death to a living human being again with joy responding to her parents. Or her parents who go from tears of joy to te- tears of, sorry, grief to tears of joy as they give her food. And, they, and they've seen all that Jesus can do. And they may have gotten in the back of their minds somehow that it's just about following and just about seeing what Jesus is doing. It it sort of ends there. And what Jesus is going to show them is, listen, discipleship doesn't just mean following Christ. It means carrying on the mission of Christ. It means taking the message that Christ has given us to the far reaches, the far corners of this world. Now, if you look at the, the passage as a whole... Uh, from 7 down to the end of verse number 32. It's one of Mark's little literary devices. We call it inclusio or bracketing. What he does is he takes one story, he slices it in half, and he puts another story in the middle, and he uses the middle story to make an emphasis that fits the other story on either side of it. It's like the, the highlight of the stories in the middle. And you kind of wonder, how do these two stories fit together? you got, first of all, the story of the disciples, and Jesus sends them out to go and preach the gospel and so on. He gives them an equipping and whatnot. And then he breaks away from that, 
And you have this little identity crisis. Who is Jesus? Is he Elijah? Is he one of the prophets? Is something like that. And then you have the story of John the Baptist and his death. And then he finishes up that story and it jumps back to the end of the first story and it shows how the disciples have gone out to preach and now he brings them back and he gathers them back to himself and they go apart by themselves for a little while to rest together. And you say, what's the point? Why does Mark... Stru- Sorry, I'm having trouble with my throat today. Why does Mark structure it like that? And the point that Mark is making as he's communicating with first century disciples and us... Through the Spirit of God and the Word of God, he's showing us that the life of a disciple is overshadowed by death. Dying to self, dying to sin, dying to the world, and so on, all those things. And they're going to see now, as they progress their way all the way to Jerusalem, because John the Baptist's death foreshadows and looks all the way forward to chapter 15, when Jesus himself will suffer and die. And it's Mark's way of bringing us along. It's like we're taken by the hand by Mark, and he's taking us on this journey through his book, and he's leading us towards the ultimate end of the story, which is Jesus' death, and then finally his resurrection, his triumph. So he's taking us down that road. And this passage in the structure shows us how death kind of hangs over all of discipleship. But it's not a death like the world knows. Fruitless and pointless and just cold, stiff, nothing. It is a death like John was talking about in the song we're singing. We're looking forward to a day when we're going to be caught up to be with Jesus. We'll forever be with him. We're looking forward... The older I get, the more I look forward to it, the more my body parts are breaking down and falling apart and not working the way they're supposed to work. I'm looking more and more forward to the day when I'm going to be caught up with Jesus and all of this will be glorified. The work of Christ in me will be finished. And I love the way Mark takes the story and he splits it apart and he puts their sending out the beginning. He puts John the Baptist's death in the middle and the last scene, what's he do? He gathers them back together. And they give an account, they give a report of all their ministry, and then he takes them aside by themselves, and they rest for a while. That's the hope we're hanging on to, isn't it? The older we get, the day we're going to spend, we're going to meet Jesus face to face. There was a few of us uh, sitting, I think it was in school, chatting about who you want to see when you get to heaven, who you want to talk to, and what are you going to say, and and what will it be like to meet all the people who have died and gone before. And, And I don't mean to sound super spiritual, but I just can't wait to see the Lord. I want to see Spurgeon. Yeah, I got some questions for him. I want to see Paul. Got a lot of questions for him. Uh, some of the ladies want to line up behind Eve and ask her a few questions about a fruit, and then so on. But I want to see the Lord. I want to look there and see the one that with the nails in his hands. And faith will give way to sight, and we'll see Jesus just as He is. And those great words, "Welcome home, good and faithful servant." I pray that those will be the words I hear when Jesus looks up and sees me coming, or we see him coming. Well, let's get on with the message for today. Uh, In your outline sheet there, there's five points on that sheet. I don't know that we'll get through all of them, and I really want to focus really on the first three, so the the last two will simply be almost a passing comment. But what I want us to see this morning is the master of the disciples. I want to focus and emphasis on Jesus and his relationship and what he's doing with his disciples. And this little summary section here gives us a beautiful instruction. If you have a green pen, like I do, sometimes I take a green pen, I always mark the verbs, the significant verbs in the passage. And as we read through this, you're going to see the significant verbs, this little opening section, because it tells us a lot about what Jesus has done with them and is doing with us today. 
So the outline is simple. Um, number one, Jesus summons and calls his disciples. Number two, Jesus equips his disciples. Thirdly, he instructs them. Fourthly, he sends them. And fifthly, he gathers them and rests them. And like I said, we'll probably focus most of our time on the first couple there. Let's read the passage together, shall we? Uh, Mark 6, beginning at verse 7, he says this, And he summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belt, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you or listen to you as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet for a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent. And they were casting out many demons and were anointing with oil many sick people and healing them. And King Herod heard of it, for his name had become well known. And people were saying, John the Baptist has risen from the dead. And that is why these miraculous powers are at work in him. But others were saying, he is Elijah. And others were saying, he is a prophet, like one of the prophets of old. But when Herod heard of it, he kept saying, John whom I beheaded is risen. For Herod himself had sent and had John arrested and bound in prison on account of Herodias, the wife of his brother Philip, because he had married her. For John had been saying to Herod, it's not lawful for you to have your brother's wife. Herodias had a grudge against him and wanted to put him to death and could not do so. For Herod was afraid of John, knowing that he was a righteous and holy man, and he kept him safe. And when he heard him, he was very perplexed, but he used to enjoy listening to him. A strategic day when Herod on his birthday gave, sorry, a strategic day came when Herod on his birthday gave a banquet for his lords and military commanders and the leading men of Galilee. And when the daughter of Herodias herself came in and danced, she pleased Herod and his dinner guests. And the king said to the girl, ask for me, from me, sorry, whatever you want, and I will give it to you. And he swore to her, whatever you ask of me, I will give it to you up to half of my kingdom. And she went out and said to her mother, what shall I ask for? And she said, the head of John the Baptist. And immediately she came in a hurry to the king and asked, saying, I want you to give me at once the head of John the Baptist on a platter. And although the king was very sorry, yet because of his oaths and because of his dinner guests, he was unwilling to refuse her. Immediately the king sent an executioner and commanded him to bring back his head. That's John's head. And he went and had him beheaded in the prison. And he brought his head on a platter and gave it to the girl. And the girl gave it to her mother. When his disciples heard about this, they came and took away his body and laid it in a tomb. The apostles gathered together with Jesus, and they reported to him all that they had done and, and taught. And he said to them, Come away by yourselves to a secluded place and rest for a while. For there are many people coming and going, and they did not even have time to eat. And they went in a way in the boat to a secluded place by themselves. And we'll trust that God will add blessing to the reading of his word. Let's ask again for God's help, shall we? Father, this morning we pray that you would open our eyes again to behold wonderful things in your word. Father, we pray as we open the scriptures together, yet you would meet with us and speak to us. Father, we pray that we would see Jesus this morning. Father, it is indeed all about him. 
And Father, our desire this morning as we gather together as a company of people is to see him, to be enthralled with him, to be awed at who he is. And Father, to see the gracious work that he has both done in the past and is still doing today in us. Father, again, challenge us and rebuke us, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. I want you to see the disciple and his Lord. I want you to see, first of all, the disciple, oh, sorry, the that Jesus summons and calls his disciples. Now, back in those days, the disciples of the Jews and the Pharisees weren't called like Jesus called his. Jesus walked along the, the beach and the, the different city streets and so on, and he would see one that he had chosen, and he'd look out and say, you, come follow me. And that person would get up and go and follow them. Well, in those days, the disciples of the Pharisees and the Jews and the rulers and so on, they would go themselves to the one that they had chosen And their devotion was not to the person they were going to. Their devotion was to the law of God. And going to one rabbi or one teacher, they would show their devotion to the law of God. One man named Hillel uh, was a famous rabbi of the first century. And he walked, walked all the way from Babylonia all the way up to Jerusalem. And he was standing outside on the Sabbath, listening through the window as the rabbi had taught the scriptures. And this rabbi was so moved by this man's devotion to the law that he invited him in and said, you can be my disciple. But in those days, it was typical for disciples to select their teacher. Kind of like today, we go to school, we look for the best school with the best teacher and the best facilities, and we choose on that basis. But in this day, in Jesus' day, he did something radically different. He went out and he chose for himself his own disciples and said, you come and you follow me. And I love the way Jesus picks his disciples. He doesn't go to the PhDs. He doesn't go to the goody two-shoes in class. He doesn't go to all the best. He goes to the lowest and the bottom. He picks the tax collectors and the fishermen, the uneducated, the untrained. I love Peter. I can identify with Peter, a bumbling guy with a big mouth that never learned to shut up, right? It's true. And the neat thing is, listen, what does 1 Corinthians tell us? He did not choose the wise, the strong, the noble, the powerful, the mighty. He chose the things that were not to shame the things that are. And we can see right in the passage in Mark 6 and verse 7, it says, He summoned the twelve. You see, what does that mean? You ever get a summons in the mail? Or like me, I had a fun experience. I was driving my truck and I was officer of the law pulled me over and uh, he said, well, I've got good news and I've got bad news. And I said, okay. He says, well, the good news is I'm not going to give you the speeding ticket you should have gotten. I said, okay, that's the good news. What's the bad news? He said, the bad news is I got a warrant for your arrest. I did that. Who, really? And he said, yes, you can do one of two things. He said, you can leave your car here. I can put you in cuffs, put you in the back of my car and take you down the thing and you can spend the night in the drunk tank before you go and appear before the judge in the morning. I said, what's my second option? He said, you can follow me exactly, and we'll go and talk to the sergeant on duty, and you can make a declaration that you'll come back and answer charges and all the rest of it. I said, I think I'll take option number two, if that's okay with you, and we went about the way. And he said, you stay right behind me. You come, and you follow me, and you stay behind me. I said, guaranteed, man, I'm not losing sight of you for anything. And it was, it was nothing. It was a park. You all look so worried. It was a parking ticket that somehow had gotten through the cracks. I was actually down here in Australia when it happened, but That's beside the story. And the point was this. He made a summons on my life. He said, you follow me. Don't you dare lose sight of me, and you come with me. He said, you want to make a fuss with me? I'll put you in cuffs. I'll treat you the way I can treat you. And it was a definite call, a definite summons. And when Jesus summoned the 12 together on this morning, whatever it was, he got them all together. He said, I've got something to tell you. He summoned them. 
But this isn't the first case. Take your Bibles, flip back over to 1 and verse 16. I want you to see this. He's walking along the beach, as we saw, and it says in verse 17. I'll let you find it. Sorry. In verse 17, he says, Follow me, and I will make you become fishers of men. And immediately they left their nets and they followed him. And immediately in verse 20, he called them. He found more. It's the same word, proskaleo. It means to call with an authoritative summons and a command. When I got that summons from the police officer, I didn't have any option about whether or not I obeyed it. He calls us. Number one, he calls us to follow him. We leave everything behind and we follow Christ wholeheartedly. In chapter 3 and verse 13, flip over there for a sec. 3 and verse 13. Story is, Jesus goes up on top of a mountain, and the Bible says he summoned those whom he himself wanted, and they came to him, and he appointed twelve so that they would be with him, and that he could send them out to preach and have authority to cast out the demons. And he appointed the twelve, Simon to whom he gave the name Peter, and James the son of Zebedee, and John the brother of James, and so on. And he calls in the names of disciples, and what he is doing in calling them is he is summoning them with an ear of Irrevocable, irresistible call. To not come would be to act in rebellion and disobedience against Jesus, the Master. And by naming them and appointing them, he is showing his authority over them. A little note for yourself as you're reading through your Bible. Whenever you see someone giving someone a name in Scripture, it shows the authority of that person over the one being named. It's an old Hebraic thing. Okay, Jesus is naming them. He's showing that they are his disciples. He calls them that he might um, be with him and that he might send them out to, pre- to, to preach the gospel and so on. So he's called them, number one, to follow him. He's called them and appointed them to be with him. Stop and think about that for a second. You realize that Jesus has a desire to be with you? No, Seriously. He longs for your company. He longs for the intimate fellowship, the intimate relationship that is ours, our privilege to enjoy. You remember by this time, he's got a whole bunch of people following him, and he's up on the mountain. Now, I don't know if he looked down and said, Peter, Andrew, uh, James, John, Simon, whatever he did, he called them by name, and he summoned them up there, and his desire was that they have fellowship and be with Jesus. The beautiful thing about what we have as Christians, as those who believe in God, is that we have been called and summoned to be with Jesus, to have that intimate fellowship that he longs with every single one of us. It's not in my notes, but let me stop and ask you. How are you doing with your time with the Lord? How are you enjoying those moments when you and Jesus get alone to be together and you stop and you open the scriptures and you get on your face before God and you begin to speak to God and even more importantly, you silently listen and read scripture and he begins to speak to you. I think I told you a story before. Uh, this Chinese pastor in, during the communist, or when it was much more in power in China and um, he was put in jail for his faith and the, the fellow wouldn't quit singing. He just kept singing everywhere he went, and he sang the hymns, you know. And so finally the, the Chinese jailers got so sick and tired of this fellow that he wouldn't quit singing. They put him out in the raw sewage in a pit outside. And they handed him a shovel, and they said, dig and go ahead and sing. And so they said you could hear him from the nearby prison. And he was saying the words, 
I come to the garden alone while the dew is still on the roses. And the voice I hear falling on my ear, the Son of God discloses. And he walks with me and he talks with me and he tells me I am his own. A pastor, even the worst of situations, knew what it was to walk and be with Jesus. Listen, our God, our Savior, delights in us and he has called us with an irrevocable, irresistible call. Why? Because he wants to be with us. And spend time with us. He called them to be with him. He called them in verse 7 of chapter 6 to send them out. He summoned them that he might send them out to preach the gospel. Take the Bibles over to Mark 8, 34 and 35. The word summon in my Bible shows up these times. And the word proskaleo shows up a couple more times. I want to pick them all out. Because they all have to do with discipleship. So Jesus is summoning his, his people. And in Mark 8, 34 and 35, and it says this. Actually to 38. And he summoned the crowd with his disciples and said to him, to them, If anyone wishes to come after me, he must deny himself, take up his cross, and follow me. For whoever wishes to save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. For what does it profit a man to gain the whole world and forfeit his soul? For what will a man give in exchange for his soul? For whoever is ashamed of me and my words in this adulterous and sinful generation, the Son of Man will also be ashamed of him when he comes in the glory of his Father and his holy angels. Jesus is saying, listen. He's summoning them and saying, come here, listen to me. If you want to follow me, it means this. It means denying yourself. It doesn't mean ascetic ritualism where you you make your life as difficult to live as possible. What it means is putting aside yourself as a primary interest. I I don't think of Nelson first. I think of Jesus first. I think of everybody else after that. And if I've got time left, I think of Nelson. And I wish like crazy that was true all the time. But it's not, frankly. But Jesus is saying, listen, you want to follow me? You want to be my disciple? This is what it means. To put self aside. What does it mean to take up the cross and follow him day by day? It doesn't mean to endure some horrible circumstance. It means to go to the Lord and put self aside. To pick up the cross and follow him. To put him first in everything. In all things he might have. What did the old King James say? The preeminence. Colossians 1, uh, 18, 19, I think it is. That's the goal. That's the desire here. And Jesus is saying, listen, you want me to be my disciples? It means giving up everything that makes you something. It's putting self aside and following Jesus 100%. One last thing we'll look at, 10 verses 42 to 45. Now, my NASB, it has the word call, but it's the same word in Greek. It's the proskaleo word, and it says this. I'll let you find it. Mark 10, verses 42 to 40, 41, actually, to 45. He says this, Hearing this, the ten began to feel indignant with James and John. They've asked that they might have the, the two thrones, one to either side of Jesus. And Jesus, in verse 42, calling them to himself, Jesus said to them, You know that those who are recognized as rulers of the Gentiles lord it over them, and their great men exercise authority over them. But it is not this way among you. Whoever wishes to become great among you shall be your servant, and whoever wishes to be first among you shall be slave of all. For even the Son of Man did not come to be served, but to serve and give his life a ransom for many. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, you want to come and follow me? You want to be my disciple? Here's what it involves. Forget 
power-seeking, forget leadership-seeking, forget looking to be the top dog on top of the pile all the time. What it is is this. It's giving your life for the other person. It's putting yourself down below. Again, I can't help thinking of this story with Jesus in the, in the upper room with his disciples. And they're all sitting around the table and they're enjoying that great last feast together. And they're all arguing about different things and talking and enjoying eating together. And nobody has taken the time to wash the other one's feet. They've all come in thinking that somebody else can do that job. And Jesus gets up and he does something that no servant, no slave is ever required to do in their culture. He unloosens the sandals of his disciples' feet and he takes them off. No servant was considered, that was considered beneath a servant's humblest position. And Jesus lovingly does it for his disciples. And he's showing his disciples here, listen, you want to be like me? You want to follow me and go all the way that I'm going? Here's what it involves. It involves giving your life as a ransom for others. Now, we can't give our lives as ransoms for each other. But we give our lives in service. We live for the benefit and the glory of the other. Our goal is to labor together that the other person might enjoy the Lord. Piper has a great thing. John Piper in their uh, music department of Bethlehem Baptist Church, they call it uh, laboring for one another's joy. (coughs) Try it again in English. Laboring for one another's joy. And that's what Jesus is showing his disciples. Listen, you want to come after me? You want to be my disciple? It's a life of laboring to give others the joy in the Lord Jesus Christ. So how are you doing so far? Jesus calls us. He's summoning. Listen, he's summoning us to be with him. And that's what that call involves. Following where he leads. Being with him. Even when it's difficult and uncomfortable. It's listening and understanding that a disciple's life is to deny himself and take up his cross and follow Christ. A disciple's life is living to serve and for the joy of the other person, not our own. And I look at that and I see that in the mirror of God's word and I tell you, I'm convicted and rebuked. How much of my life is focused on getting my joy from somebody, having other people make me feel good or make me feel great or whatever it is. It's a tough pill to swallow, isn't it? But that's what it means to be a disciple of Jesus Christ. And you know why? Because that's the way he lived. That's the way he lived out his whole life on this earth, culminating in a cross. So point number one, Jesus summons and calls his disciples. Jesus is calling us to follow him, to come and to die, to live for Christ, to live for the joy of the other one. Second point is this, Jesus equips the disciples in 6 verse 7b. So go back to Mark 6. Back in Mark 6, he says, he summoned the 12 and began to send them out in pairs. And secondly, he gave them authority over the unclean spirits. Now, in the context also, Jesus gave them two great signs that would validate all their teaching. He gave them the authority temporarily to cast out unclean spirits. And he also gave the ability to heal those who were sick. Now, I'm going to frustrate a few of you here this morning because some of you have been asking me about this particular issue, the signs and wonders and miracles and how they fit with today and all of that and how we understand all that. I'm not going to take all the time to explain it. I'm just going to give a very simple explanation and move on. We will talk about it at some point in the future, though. Here it is, simply. 
Jesus equipped them with power and authority temporarily to cast out demons and heal the sick to validate their message. So as they would go around preaching the gospel, calling people to repent, they would do miracles and wonders and signs so that people might know there's something far different about these disciples. And you got to admit, they weren't the, like the... They didn't go around, you know, Dr. Peter and, you know, PhD and all these different degrees. He was Peter the fisherman. He spoke the crudest Greek going. Then there was Levi. He's a tax collector, right? Ain't nobody going to listen to him very much. He's the the tax guy. And he had to do something in order to validate their ministry. Keep something in mind here as we talk about this. All of this is happening prior to the cross, Jesus' resurrection, and Pentecost when the Spirit of God came in power. This is all prior to that. So these two men going out in pairs do not have the Spirit of God filling them the way that we do. It's a different situation. And he gave them those miraculous signs and wonders and so on to validate their ministry. It's the same. Moses came into Egypt, let my people go. This rebellious, runaway, adopted prince of the the king's sister is standing there saying, let my people go with a staff, right? Why? And he begins to do miracles and signs and wonders. And you remember what the, the Egyptian uh, magician said after a few weeks of all this? They said, listen, Pharaoh, this is none other than the hand of God that's doing these things. They saw in the miracles and signs and wonders that Moses was doing in Egypt, that that was God's hand at work displaying the truth of Moses' words. Elijah and Elisha come along. They have all those stories about the miracles and things that Elijah and Elisha did. Axes floating and people having uh, one, two children raised from the dead and so on. Why was all those signs and wonders and miracles happening in those two prophets? God was showing the introduction of a new age of the writing of Scripture. The writing prophets were coming. Okay, you got Jesus of Nazareth shows up and he declares the gospel, preaches the kingdom of God to the people, and he does signs and wonders and miracles that validate his teaching and show who he truly is and the truth of what he's really saying. It's the same with these two guys, these guys here, the 12. He sends them out in pairs and gives them the ability to do this. We know it's temporary because if you go to Mark 9, and Jesus takes three of them up on a mountain, and he shows them all his glory in a moment. They come back down the mountain, and the other nine stand there, and they're trying to cast out a demon, and they can't do it. It's, they're unable to. And Jesus is grieved in his spirit because they can't do it, and he casts out the demon and so on. That ability was given to them temporarily. The apostles, here's where some of you are going to go, wait a minute, the apostles, they had signs and wonders and miracles after Pentecost. What happened? Why don't we see signs and wonders and miracles today? That's a great question. In fact, my Hebrews prof just this week we took a little sidestep from our study in Hebrews 1 and 2 and looked at that particular question. Why don't we see it today? Now, first of all, you've got to say this. Number one, can God do those things? And my answer is yes, absolutely. I believe that God can heal people miraculously. I think he does it all the time, and we never notice it and never see it. If I didn't believe that, why pray and ask God to heal somebody if we don't believe that God can do it? Does he heal miraculously? Yes, I believe he does. Do we see it? No. I reckon that 99% of what you hear is healing meetings and that sort of stuff. I disbelieve most of it. Call me a cynic. You're welcome to do that. Call me, uh, you know, crusty old brethren, whatever you want to call me. That's fine. I don't care. But I think most of that is put on. 
I think the vast majority of what's really happening in those areas, miraculous healing and stuff, we never see and never hear about. It's behind the scenes. You notice, by the way, miracle after miracle that Jesus does. What does he do when he's finished? He goes, don't tell anybody. (laughs) Why? Was he embarrassed? No. I think he knew that the main point... And here's the, here's the catch point. The main point of his ministry was not to miraculously heal people and raise the dead and all that. His main point of ministry was to go all the way to a cross, to suffer and die, to, do, to effect a far greater miracle, which was our salvation. So to answer the question, why doesn't that happen today? I think it does. I think you have to be very careful how you see it and what you go looking for. And I want to spend more time thinking about this, but I don't want to spend it today. I want to move on to what the main point of this is. I want you to get the point that, listen, Jesus graciously equipped them for ministry. What does that mean for us? In that day, he equipped them with the ability to do those things to validate their teaching. In our day, he's given us something far greater than the ability just to temporarily do those things. He's given us the infilling of the Holy Spirit. We have the Spirit of God in us. What did Paul say in in 1 Corinthians 2? Take your Bibles and flip over there for a sec. I think it's 2. There is a verse in here, and I cannot seem to put my finger on it. Oh, here it is. It's in chapter 4, verses 18, 19, 20 in there. Chapter 4, let's read from verse 19. But I will come to you soon, if the Lord wills, and I shall find out not the words of those who are arrogant, but their power. For the kingdom of God does not consist in words, but in power. What's he saying? He's saying, listen, it's not the ability to preach. It's not the ability to orate publicly like I'm doing. It's literally the power of the Spirit of God that accompanies the words that you are preaching. What does that mean? As he preached, there are all kinds of miraculous things happening. Possibly, but I think far more likely what is happening is as he is preaching, the Spirit of God is doing a work to change and make lives new. He is filling people and in... in, What's the right word? He is regenerating them to make them alive in Christ. That's the power of the Spirit of God that accompanies the preaching. How is it that we live our lives? What has God given us graciously as a gift to live this life for Christ? It's the infilling power of the Spirit of God. In Ephesians 1, we have the fact that we are sealed and gifted with the Spirit of God. But in Ephesians 5, Paul says, be filled. Not with wine, but be filled with the Spirit. Okay, what's he trying to say? It's not just being sealed with the Spirit. It's also experiencing the filling of the Spirit. I am not talking about second blessing. Don't don't go there. What I'm talking about is knowing the full power of the Spirit of God in our lives. You say, how is the power of the Spirit of God stopped or hindered? It's sin that gets in and hinders the influence of the Spirit of God in our lives from working through us to live this life, to minister this life, to preach the gospel, and so on. Jesus, in Mark 6, equipped and gave his disciples the authority over unclean spirits and the ability to heal people as a way of validating their ministry. God has given us a tremendous gift in the Spirit of God that validates and enables us to live this life successfully for Christ. You think you do it on your own? 
Wake up. You don't do anything without the power of the Spirit of God enabling you to do it as a believer. So number one, uh, Jesus summons and he calls his disciples to be with him, to follow him, and so on. Secondly, he equips them. And thirdly, the last one we'll look at today is Jesus instructs his disciples. Let's look again uh, at verse number 7 8. It says, He summoned the twelve and began to send them out in pairs and gave them authority over the unclean spirits. And he instructed them that they should take nothing for their journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in their belts, but to wear sandals. And he added, Do not put on two tunics. And he said to them, Whenever you enter a house, stay there until you leave town. Any place that does not receive you nor listen to you, as you go out from there, shake the dust off the soles of your feet as a testimony against them. And they went out and preached that men should repent, and we'll leave it there. Here's the point. Jesus instructed his disciples. The goal, the role of a master-disciple relationship, like a master and apprentice, is to teach the apprentice, to teach a disciple, and train them and instruct them and demonstrate for them all that we are supposed to do and live. You go back to Mark 1, and you just read all the things that Jesus is doing. He's just demonstrating the life of faith. He's demonstrating and teaching them about the kingdom of God. He's teaching them about the Son of God, who He is. He's displaying in miracle after miracle, this is who I am. When they went out to preach, by the way, I've always found it kind of neat that Jesus never taught His disciples how to preach. He taught them how to pray, but not how to preach. But He did give them, by demonstration and example, what they were to declare, what their message should be. And they went out preaching repentance. They went out preaching the kingdom of God. I'm convinced of that. They went out preaching who Jesus was, proclaiming the coming of the kingdom in the person of Christ. But before they did that, Jesus taught them. He instructed them. He took them aside by themselves at periods of time and taught them the parables and explained those things to them. The Bible tells us, I think it's in the book of John, that if all the things that Jesus said and did were written down, the whole world couldn't contain the books which when we get to heaven makes me kind of curious to find where that library is and go look, right? And see all the things that Jesus did and said that weren't recorded for us. There's so much more that they had that they could draw on to teach. And they went out after he instructed them. Jesus also teaches them about living by faith. Look what he says down in number uh, eight there. He says, Take nothing for the journey except a mere staff, no bread, no bag, no money in your belt. What is he trying to get across to them? It's something we were talking about on Tuesday night and from 1 Peter. We live in this world as aliens and strangers. And the idea he's trying to get across to them is, listen, as disciples of mine going out into the world to preach the gospel, you travel light. You don't take the things that everybody else would take with you. You don't take the bread that you need. You don't take the money you think you might need to buy something. The bag is kind of like a leather large leather wallet thing, like a big knapsack over their shoulder. And what the beggars would do is they put that over their shoulder and they'd go places and they would beg and fill their bag with the bits and pieces they got from people passing by. And Jesus says, don't take any of those things with you. Why? Because he wants them to live in total dependency upon him for their supply of everything that they need. And you know, I got a friend, um, Mike Jensen, happens to be uh, Matt's pastor over at Clayton Presbyterian Church. And he's lived his whole life. He, I think he's probably in his close to 60s. Yeah, Matt? Yeah. About 60 years of age. Doesn't own a house. 
has no car, doesn't own hardly anything. And his whole goal and focus, and when you spend time with Mike and you sit with him and you talk with him and you pray with him, he is so Christ-focused, you just kind of think to yourself, wow, am I even saved? Do I even know the Lord? And wow. And you know what I think it is? We live in a world where we're so caught up with the possessions that we have to have the newest this, the latest that, the biggest of that, the widest of this, and so on. That we've lost sight of what it means to live in simple faith in God. You spend time with some missionaries, when the Pirates are around, or some of the other missionary friends, the Mackays are around. Spend time with them and ask them about what the kind of things they're doing and what kind of stuff they're getting for themselves. They couldn't care less about the stuff of this world. We are called as disciples of Jesus Christ to live as aliens and strangers, not hanging on with a grip of death to all the goodies and treats that we possibly could. The problem with us is we're so busy trying to live and get the most we can out of this world and hang on to all this world's junk, to be perfectly honest with you, that we have no time and no vision for the greater things of the kingdom of God. And I don't say that just to to point at you. I say that with three fingers pointing right back at myself. That's how easy I find to get sucked up into all the stuff we think we got to have. What's that guy say? We, we borrow money to buy things we don't need to put in places we can't afford to impress people we don't like. It's, it's true, isn't it? And Jesus is saying, listen, I'm going to send you out to preach the gospel. Don't take money. Don't take a bag. Don't take all the bread you need. Go out in total dependence on me in faith. And living a life of a disciple, it doesn't matter whether you're in full-time ministry or what you do for a living. It's exactly the same. It's a life of absolute dependence upon God. And you can bet your bottom dollar, I will get tested on this this week. It's true. That's the calling he's putting on them. Deny yourself. Take up your cross and follow me. Serve others. Come and be with me. The problem for us, as I look at the world we live in, especially the Australian, Canadian, American, Western culture, is we're so entrenched and so caught up with this world that we have little time for the Lord Jesus. And when he says, come and be with me, come and spend time with me, come and pray with me, come and speak with me in prayer, come and follow me, come and look and see what I did. I took a cross and I carried it all the way to the top of a hill and I was allowed myself to be nailed to it that I might bear your sin and deal with your sin before God. And he calls us to follow him. It isn't just to stand at a distance and watch. It's literally, it's like the little boy. You don't have snow here, so it's maybe hard for you to kind of imagine. But in, back in Canada, and in, in, definitely in Ohio, they had more snow than we did, uh, deep snow drifts. And this little boy goes out for a walk with his daddy, and the daddy's walking along. And the little boy's kind of stumbling along. He keeps falling over because he can't get his, gets his feet stuck in the snow. You have to kind of experience I don't know what I mean. But um, the dad turns around and says, look, look son, he says, just, you just put your feet right where I put my feet. And he takes his big steps in the snow and the daddy's big boots crushed on a big hole in the snow. And the little boy behind him starts walking along with his feet. And he's getting his feet right in the spots where daddy's walking. And before he knows it, he doesn't fall over anymore. He's actually keeping up with dad. And the dad's purposely taking smaller steps so the little boy can keep up and walk. And that's what Jesus means when he said, come follow me. 
That's what he meant when he meant when he summoned the 12 and began to send them out. You walk the way I walk. You walk where I walk. And you know what? Your walk will take you all the way to a cross. And for us, it might not be a literal six-by-six cross on a hillside. For us, it might be the cross of giving up the things that are most precious to us that we might be more like Jesus. He's summoning us. He's saying, come be with me. Come follow me. Come walk with me. And for all of us, from pulpit to the back wall, everybody in this room, he's calling all of us. And my question to you this morning is, are you listening to the call of Jesus? Are you hearing what he's saying? Are you obeying that call? It's one thing to listen, right? My kids hear me tell them what to do all the time. Every once in a while, they, they do what I tell them to do. And they, they discover it's surprisingly different results when they actually do what I tell them to do rather than just listen. And the easiest thing in the world for us is to sit and listen to a sermon and sit and read your Bible and sit and listen to songs or testimonies. And we hear it. And we nod, oh, yeah, amen. And we're so convicted by it. And we do absolutely nothing about it. And that's where it all falls apart. Because what, what we claim to believe is not proven by what we say. What we claim to believe is proven by what we do with our hands and our feet and our mouth. There's one other scene I want to bring out. This is, we're way off the notes, but don't worry about that. Back in Mark 3, and actually, if you look at all those summonings in Mark 1, Mark 3, Mark 8, Mark 10, in every case, there's a shadow of death that hangs over it. Not death as far as like dying and going to the ground. I mean death as far as separation. In Mark 1, he called the four. What did they do? They got up, they left their father and the servants in the boat, and they followed Jesus. In Mark 3, there's a whole crowd of Jesus' followers out in there on the, the plain below the mountain, and he calls 12. They leave behind a whole bunch more. In John 8, you get to John 8, there's a whole, there's hundreds of people following Jesus, and he preaches the word to them, and it's so powerful, and it's so separating that by the end, the whole congregation goes from hundreds of people down to 12. It was the biggest church shrink in history, I think, from hundreds down to 12 in one sermon. And Jesus looks at them and says, you're going to leave also? And they say, no. We're, who, who else are we going to follow? You have the words of life. And they stay with him. The reality is, and I've discovered it in a bigger way recently, when you make that step, to follow Christ and walk with Christ like a little boy walking in his daddy's footprints, you can guarantee yourself one thing. There will be friends around you and family around you that will not go with you. They will not understand. And more than likely, they will rebuke you and say all kinds of nasty things about you because you're choosing that. That's what it means to follow Christ. I'd love to give you a great glowing picture. And in some ways I can. But in a far deeper way to follow Christ, taking up your cross and going after him means leaving so much behind. There's an old hymn we used to sing. Um, Though none go with me, yet I will follow. What's, this, what's the hymn, Deb? What's it, what is it? I have to, <laughs> what better title, hey? I have decided to follow Jesus. 
though no one go with me, yet still I will follow. How easily we sing those words, but how difficult they are when there is no one with you and you are alone. But that's the call on our lives. Why? Because Jesus wants to do great things through us. He's called us. He's equipped us. He's instructed us. He's sending us. And a day to come, he'll gather us back to be with him again. And faith will give way to sight and we will see Jesus as he is. What an amazing Savior we have. And what a life we have been called to live. And where the rubber hits the road is where, whether or not you and I, and I include you and me too, are willing to say, I will follow Jesus, though no one else go with me. No turning back, no turning back. Would you stand with me? We're going to uh, pray, and then John's going to lead us in one more, one more song. Loving Father, this morning, in my own time, I asked you that you would lead with me, lead me, and put words in my mouth, bring stories and so on to mind, that the message would be from you to us. And Father, I didn't plan to say half of what I said this morning. And I'm so grateful, O God. Father, I pray this morning as we sit here that you would take the words that have been said. And Father, I pray that if something has been said that isn't quite right, that you would remove it from our minds and our memories. But Father, by the same token, I plead with you, by the power of the Holy Spirit, the things that have been said that are scriptural and biblical and are true from your heart to ours, oh God, do not let us put them aside easily. Father, the call to live a life of a disciple is a hard call. But it's a call that requires our obedience or eternal consequences. Father, for all of us sitting here this morning, we all have different struggles and different problems, different issues we're dealing with. Father, it is so easy for us to be so caught up, so entrenched in the world we live in that we can barely pull our heads up to see up above, to hear your voice, to hear your call. Father, we plead with you this morning that you would lift up our voices. Father, as the psalmist says in Psalm 40, to lift us up out of the miry clay and set our feet upon a solid rock that we might sing a new song of joy to the Lord. Father, help us, all of us, every one of us, to consider long and hard what it means to follow you and to be willing to take up the cross, to deny ourselves. And like the little boy, put one foot after another into the footsteps of Jesus and follow exactly where he went, being willing to endure exactly what he endured. Father, it staggers the human mind to consider that Jesus, who was in who was very God of very God, being in the form of God. He didn't think it robbery to be equal with God, but made himself of no reputation. He took upon himself the form of a servant that came as a man, and he suffered and died for us. And Father, you have given him a name that's above every name, that the name of Jesus every knee would bow, and every tongue confess that he is Lord. Father, for us to do that, it must be more than words that come out of our mouth. It must be the heart bending and bowing before the Almighty God. It must be a tongue that is empowered by the Spirit of God to say, He is Lord.
Father, we plead with you that you would do a work amongst us all. Awaken us, O God. Revive us according to your word, we pray. And we do so in Jesus' name, giving thanks. Amen.